Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mormonish. I'm Rebecca. And I'm Landon. And we have a guest that we have been trying to get on for quite a while now. We have a very old friend of mine and my husband, the amazing Todd Mark. Welcome to the program, Todd. Glad to be here. <laughs> so Todd is such a close family friend that I actually named my cat um, after Todd. Of course, my cat's full name is Todd Rick, but completely named after Todd. Yeah, my so. There you go. I'm really, I'm really excited to meet Todd because uh, every time we go anywhere with uh, Rebecca and Tom, I hear the Todd stories. Uh, so, uh, like you said, you we always have to differentiate. The, they've got Todd the cat and Todd the man. So when they're telling stories about Todd, uh, I never know what we, we're not sure who they're talking about. So they'll say Todd the man. I guess both of you like watching birds or something. So we have to. <laughs> That's right. You have a lot of similarities and a lot of the stories sound like, you know, I came home, Todd was rolling around on the floor. He had a hairball. Things could be the same. So we always have to differentiate. So, <laughs> well, we're super happy that you're here. And Todd is a very interesting person. And I know that you guys are really going to be absolutely fascinated by this story. I mean, it just runs the gamut of agony and ecstasy and everything in between. So let's start out by just, just introduce yourself, Todd. Tell us about your beginnings. Tell us everything. Okay, I'm. my name's Todd, uh, Todd Mark. Uh, I was born in Hawaii, uh, and uh, that was kind of the start of things. I, but the hub for my family was uh, Southern California, and I would say I was uh, born to what I would call armchair Christians. Uh, they just identified as Christians, but uh, didn't really know much about any of it, and uh, sort of... Uh, or in the turbulent 60s with the riots and all such. And my parents were uh, sort of paranoid conservative and uh, uh, were pretty sure the uh, uh, U.S. was going to end and even did had considerations of moving to places like uh, what, what, the New Hebrides, which is now the nation of Vanuatu. Um, and fortunately, I uh, didn't do that. But anyway, uh, I remember as a kid... Uh, uh, not really being uh, religious or having religious parents, but uh, they were shopping around uh, for a religion for us. And uh, eventually, uh, just about as we were about to leave Hawaii uh, to move uh, back to the mainland, which is where they decided to go, uh, they uh, converted to Mormon. And I still remember uh, the day they were baptized because it was uh, kind of confusing to me. And it was outside in the fountain, uh, not exactly you're aware um how old them. were you how old were you when they converted but no i was four i was four and because i remembered having my fifth uh, birthday um as we were uh, living in a hotel because we had sold our house and uh, uh i remember my mom said she put it on the market she put a sign up and the neighbor came over with like a wad of cash like here you go <laughs> and how fast it's and uh, so we had to live in a hotel for the last uh, uh, couple of uh, day, uh, weeks. I don't remember. And uh, and then we uh, moved to the mainland. And uh, so with our new religion and my mom uh, had decided that uh, she was so sure of it, she had sent uh, all of our furniture uh, with like Mayflower, one of those uh, moving companies. And it was uh, sent in a big box to uh, uh, Salt Lake City. 
And so then when we got uh, back to uh, California, where my grandmother lived, uh, that was my mom's mom, so my maternal grandmother, she had a uh, Cadillac, and we uh, appropriated the Cadillac and took off uh, throughout the West looking for our, a new home. And I think my mom said one of the uh, one of the missionaries was from Pocatello, known as Pokey, and uh, and he spoke glowingly of Pokey, and of course <laughs> Pokey is uh, teased as one of the less uh, attractive cities in the world. Uh, no uh, offense to anybody who's from Pokey. Actually, yeah. I spent a summer at uh, Idaho State University as junior in high school. I got invited to some program there. So I actually have college credits there, and it's not so bad. Uh, go bang. So she was trying to gather with the saints. Furniture was in Utah. You might go there. She's looking at, and you guys had never been anywhere around there. But simply no. because you have a new religion, you've got to go yeah. gather. Yeah, yeah, pretty much like that. And but when she got there, she's like, "Uh, no, this ain't gonna work." And on the way, on the way, we passed through Lake Tahoe, where she would go for summer. She was uh, kind of a, uh, she had her parents were well to do for the community where she grew up. El Monte was uh, in the in in L.A. area, uh, San Gabriel Valley. If anyone's familiar with the L.A. area, um, was uh, actually kind of a farming community back uh, when my parents were born and it was a lot of farmland out there and actually all the dust bowlers uh, showed up uh, like toads in uh, the grapes of wrath and they all ended up there. And um, so an apocryphal story was my dad was asked uh, in one of his early, like first, second grade classes, who was born in California and he was the only one <laughs> that could raise his hand. The only one. Oh my gosh. Well, right. You know these, uh, uh, like I said, apocryphal stories. Uh, anyway, so uh, so anyway, so we got the Cadillac and went around. My mom, uh, how Alec was saying, was uh, a little bit uh, had more money, so she uh, was familiar with places like like Tahoe. So we went up there, and of course, she's like, "No, let's let's go there." So, <laughs> if not Utah, then Lake Tahoe. It makes perfect Tahoe. sense. Perfect. Sense. Anyway, so that was. Uh, so that's kind of like how my uh, my Mormon past that wasn't uh, sort of got passed over because uh, uh, Sabbath was uh, was was uh, S as in skiing instead of S as in Sabbath. So, uh, so we had our own uh, ski resort there. It used to be called it's called Diamond Peak. Now it's called Incline uh, in Ski Incline. And so that's where we grew up in Lake Tahoe. My brother was into fishing. We were latchkey kids. We could walk all over the community. Um, sometimes I'd go up the creek, uh, literally uh, <laughs> exploring it. It's actually it's now known as uh, Mount Rose Wilderness area, and so I really got hooked into natural history. That was kind of my uh, sort of religion, and I, so I read everything about animals and so on and so forth. And there actually was interested in evolution at a young age. Uh, something that my father to this day uh, swears is a uh, is a uh, made up. <laughs> of course it is. Yeah. I'm just trying to picture how you guys were Mormons, though, if you're skiing and you're hanging. I mean, were you were they attending every Sunday? Were they? Right. The story was that it, we had to go over to the neighboring community of uh, Kings Beach, which was kind of the hippie hangout um, on one side of Incline. Uh, I live in Incline, the Nevada side. OK. And my dad commuted to work uh, in Reno. Uh, so we go over a mountain pass. It's 9000 feet. And he dropped down every day. Uh, back and forth on on that, and uh, the branch uh, was in Kings Beach, 
uh, which I, I mean, that's uh, not warm in a branch is kind of not big enough for a ward. So it means you have small numbers of members and, and sometimes uh, they have to scratch around to find somebody that'll uh, fill the offices. And that's kind of what was the case there. And I think uh, my mom said they showed up uh, on the first day and uh, whoever the branch president was, uh, uh, look, she felt like he was eyeing her over and kind yeah, of gave kind her of the, so. looking her up and down. <laughs> uh, the decision as a new member to, uh, to sort of ditch the whole thing. And that's kind of what happened. So, really? uh, yeah, so I, I ne never really even knew of this episode. Uh, so now we fast forward uh, to uh, later in the 70s. This was in 1970. I moved up there. Uh, and then by 77, uh, this is my whole world, everything that I knew. Of course, I remember my days in Hawaii. And then uh, my parents got divorced. And my mother happened to attend a uh, high school reunion where she uh, uh, rekindled a, a romance with uh, with. Her boyfriend from the eighth grade, who was also um, available, and so uh, kind of uh, without thinking about it much, we just picked up and moved down there and uh, to Southern California. So now it's back in uh, Mecca, as I would call it. Uh, so through, throughout my childhood, we'd do these long drives. We'd always drive either the five if it was too much snow on three ninety five, which is down the Great Basin through uh, through uh, Owens Valley. Uh, or we take the five over Donner Pass if Donner Pass was uh, snowed in, of course, and uh, head on down. And so not long after my parents were divorced, uh, my brother uh, stayed with my dad and my sister and I moved down with our soon to be new stepdad. And before that happened, my mom had uh, became uh, sick and she uh, was admitted to the hospital. And in the process, it was a hysterectomy or something. Uh, she wasn't exactly in healthy condition and she had a stroke. And nobody realized uh, until uh, fortunately she had a friend of hers, uh, actually that who was <laughs> grew up Mormon and uh, was uh, by this time a Jack Mormon. And she was the one that noticed that uh, my mother wasn't responding well after the surgery and notified the doctors and eventually they realized that she had had a stroke and was uh, pretty soon was almost on her deathbed. So of course her friend, the Jack Mormon sent for the elders to give her a uh, blessing or such, you know, uh, anoint, what do they call that? A, um, you know, anointing with oil and a blessing yeah, a and that, blessing. yeah, a priesthood blessing of healing. Yeah. And so, and I remember my soon to be stepdad saying, uh, coming home and saying, uh, I have to talk to you because it doesn't look like your mom's going to make it. Uh, maybe you should say a prayer for her. And of course, I never said a prayer in my life. And I kind of was a atheist at the time. Uh, Were you baptized? Had you been baptized? Because I was five and my brother was eight. And so then said, they just kind of fell away I and nobody was baptized or anything. Okay. Yeah. I just remembered it being like a curious event. And, and okay. so it came back, you know, I was like, oh, that's what that was. And so, okay. of course, so my mother pulls through. And uh, so then, of course, um, you know, the local ward realized, oh, here's two, um, here's two uh, kids we can dunk. Um, and, uh, and so uh, first they were sister. And then I remembered her saying to me uh, and and we got, you know, we kind of in solidarity because a lot it was a pretty traumatic year for me as yeah. far as I went to a move. 
uh, moved away from my childhood friends, um, experienced a divorce. Plus, I'm going through puberty. I'm, I'm, you know, 12 going on 13. So all these events, you know, stressful events are going on. So um, anyway, so my sister, uh, they, uh, they used to say challenge to a baptism. I don't know what that, I think they changed the words on that, but that's what they used to say. Well, so they, they tell you that you've decided to do it, even though you're very, very young, you've made the conscious decision and then they kind of hold it over your head for the rest of yeah. your life. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so she did. And so she was so out of solidarity. I, uh, I went ahead and uh, followed up and went ahead and, uh, and did it, even though you know, I still believe in evolution. Though I will say that um, um, the Mormons aren't, they don't teach against evolution or anything. It's just, you know, they just stick to a divine creation of man, you right. know, however that works. Another story. Um, I've met Mormons and, on both sides of it. But so you were basically a 12 year old atheist who got baptized uh, to support your sister who wanted to be yeah. baptized. Yeah. And, and of okay, course, then. I was, and yeah, of course. And then, it, you know, it was difficult adapting at school. I said I went from a Wonder Bread community um, at Lake Tahoe. At least back then, it was uh, you know, a hundred percent white. I mean, we had one black mm -hmm. kid who was pretty popular, uh, Michael Robinson, and uh, and we had we had one Hispanic kid. That was it back then. Right. Most of it was uh, most of the houses were owned by uh, what do you call it? Uh, vacationers from uh, San uh -huh. Francisco, and yeah. then we had a quite a few pilots from TWA that were, and my brother and I used to go, uh, the, the, the kids of the pilots, we'd be, would go, Oh, we went on vacation to here and here and here. My brother would be like, Oh my God, that's so horrible. Cause we, uh, we had stamp collections. We wanted to travel the world. That was. This is explaining everything to me. Once you guys hear a little bit, what Todd about what Todd does now, this origin story is making total sense to me. So this is great, but now you're in California in a very different environment. So anyway, so yeah, California was a new experience and it was good. And I adapted well because uh, uh, my junior high school, my first junior high school was difficult. Um, it was uh, half Hispanic and uh, with a lot of Koreans. And so it was kind of my sort of a culture shock, you could almost right. say. Of course, um, don't anybody get the idea that I'm against Hispanics. I actually am an honorary Hispanic now. I speak Spanish and I spend a lot of my life, uh, much yeah. of my life with some of my best friends are uh, yep. are I live in Peru and so on and so forth. I've got godchildren right. now. I forgot. Yeah. Anyway. So, but at first it was, and then from there, uh, this is before uh, Prop 13 in California, which was a tax uh, thing, as uh, people were getting sort of taxed out of their homes. So, uh, but prior to that, LA County had higher taxes. We moved down to uh, Orange County. I moved in Brea, which was. Uh, I always use I like to use the word wonder bread community. Again, it was a, uh, it was very white and, but it had a very good uh, school. And I would say that was a very uh, excellent year for me uh, in junior high school. It was almost like going to private school and uh, I learned so much uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it set me on the path for everything Spanish. I became good at math. I became good at everything um, and became a good student ever since that, uh, just by going to that one junior high school. And you're still and participating I, in church then. You're still going to everything like anybody would. You're a deacon, you're a teacher, you're doing all the stuff. Okay. And then the funny thing was, though, each time, each time I, I would, so I was in Hacienda Heights at first. Um, and of course, I, you know, I had my support system. And then every time I move, I go, oh, am I going to reconnect with this? Because oh. uh, my, 
my Sundays were sacred to me in a different sort of sacred way. Uh, and uh, uh, anyway, so eventually, yeah, we uh, got reconnected and, and, and it was good for me there. And then uh, for some reason, um, uh, my mother had another bout of uh, paranoia about the, the world ending <laughs> in the throes of uh, the Cold War. And uh, so she decided, uh, let's uh, and, and let's escape the rat race and go move, uh, go rural. So she uh, explored the possibility of moving to Idaho. She buys okay. a ticket, goes and comes home and says, OK, I put an offer on a house. And so next thing I know, wasn't even uh, finished the school year and we're uh, we're uh, driving up to Idaho to live up there. So then I had another chance to break away <laughs> and then eventually, you know, you know, got pulled in. And uh, what part of Idaho? Because she didn't like Pocatello. So this must have been somewhere else. It was uh, 10,000 people. It was mostly farmland. And of course, it abuts uh, uh, Boise. Oh, um, and now okay. the second city in Idaho. So, yeah, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> I, was, I was just up there, funny enough. Uh, uh, one of my nephews got married up there. Uh, to, in that area. To, to a gal. Uh, anyway. So, uh, so then, uh, in Idaho, uh, what, you know, so I did well in school. So I was looking for colleges, universities. My parents didn't have a lot of money. This is the time of the great recession and it particularly hit hard in, uh, areas like Idaho. Uh, and, uh, so my parents did, had very little money. I didn't want to burden them. So I was looking for, so my options to go to school were either Idaho state university of Idaho, uh, or, Brigham Young and uh, Brigham Young had a very uh, uh, good offer uh, for uh, my grades were high enough that the first two years I got full tuition and I think I kept my grades up enough to get half tuition for the second half and uh, so that's so went there went off to went off to uh, 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 BYU. So how, uh, how active came. were you? How active were you when you made that decision to go to BYU? <laughs> I mean that's a pretty big uh, if you're not active always- to go there. No, I, I was uh, always a good kid. I mean, I always I was a real follower. Um, I, I I would say I've always been irreverent. That's I was always making jokes in uh, priesthood class and so on and so forth, make everybody laugh. And so in that sense, uh, I was uh, irreverent, but I always uh, played by the rules and uh, always respected that. And I said the whole time I was at BYU, I played by the rules and, you know, I signed an honor, honor code. So uh, so I honored it, you know. And what year was that? The, what was your freshman year? I'm trying... So I went there. Sorry, what was that? 80? 83. So it have been the fall 80... of 83. Okay. And then semester of 84. And of course, all of my roommates. So I, so anyway, um, I dreaded going to the dorms because uh, actually um, uh, I was, uh, I was, uh, I probably could have been a good, uh, what do you call them? A, a good beehive or uh, whatever. Because actually I helped my mom do all the canning and all the, all the things that, <laughs> <laughs> and making pie there's anything help. you can't do todd that's what i say there's nothing todd can't do wow <laughs> and so they had they finally opened up helam and halls yeah uh, if you're, um to to boys because of course there was this sort of um dichotomy back in the day that um women did womenly uh womenly activities and women needed a kitchen i stayed in helaman halls for my very first year at byu in 1984 so yep i know exactly what you mean you had the kitchen oh so yeah there you go um 
And so they finally, it was the first year. So I said, oh, this is cool. So I can cook and, uh, and I don't have to eat uh, horrible dorm food, uh, which I had experienced at Idaho State University. I was like, oh my God. It was like, um, and, uh, and so it, it caught up in the spirit with my, uh, all my roommates who were all from Utah. They were all like, oh, mission, 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 mission. And I kind of thought, uh, uh, kind of felt a, uh, a moral uh, obligation to, okay, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do this, you know, I got to pay my way. They're paying my tuition, so on and so forth. So I enlisted myself. And unfortunately, I was hoping to get papers rolling and out. And it uh, sort of stalled. And so I didn't get out until um, late in November. And as a result of that, I was in uh, the district within the mission with uh, a certain Tom. <laughs> that's so funny. And, and so I forgot, where did you go? Oh, and so, yeah, um, he he and most of them went to where Tom went, which was, I think, Mexico City South Mission. Right, right. And me and one, I guess, who's sort of a staple of uh, of Mormon bluegrass, uh, uh, Gesslison. He was my uh, my uh, my companion. And uh, and we both went to Merida. OK, right. so back is then, that north or south? Because, yeah, he was south. And was that north of that? Yeah, no, they keep. Back then, his mission area would have abutted our mine at some point, like on some border. Okay. Um, but, but anyway, so so anyway, so there. I, next thing I knew, I was uh, down in uh, uh, Mexico, and it was exciting to me because I was actually interested in a lot of uh, uh, ar archaeology. Uh, of course, we didn't know that much about it back then, or or understand how it uh, connected and stuff. And uh, and of course, one of my neighbors brought me all the books about. Um, how these were all uh, mentioned in the Book of Mormon somehow names and of course I at the time I'm going wait this doesn't I was just having a hard time with the geography so actually that's been one of my strong points um, yeah you were and, you were there right at the height of farms when all of that was being yeah. said this is it this is we we found all the Book of Mormon lands and of course now uh, farms is disbanded because they couldn't find any evidence for it there but uh, no, no. I mean, it just—I just couldn't make any of it mesh. And uh, and and actually, there was one book I think that um, one of the uh, that I got my hands on it had a more plausible approach to it. And uh, you know, it was uh, you know, of course, it had to it had to uh, uh, I don't know what would you say uh, sort of you know wiggle through things to yeah, yeah. make it work. Yeah, <laughs> make it fit. But it's yeah. interesting that you, just because you were, you knew so much, you'd studied so much, you were aware, you knew that it didn't quite fit. Where most people, you just read it and ate it up. You had no idea what the real topography or geography of the areas were. And so you just thought, of course, this is real. But you knew enough not to know that. That's so interesting. And so, and the funny thing was, so my my first companion I had was actually a, a, a gringo like me. And, uh, and, uh, uh, we uh, we both were sort of dismayed. We had our new uh, mission president, and he was uh, from Guatemala, and he was he it was almost like he wasn't even interested in anything like ruins and stuff. So so it was kind of like I'm this kid in the candy store, uh, and but I can't get any of the candy because I know I can't leave or or go anywhere. I mean, and it would be it would, I mean it was kind of cool. You'd go to somebody's house and they'd go oh here, and they'd go into their bedroom, and pull out some old Meccan. Uh, a piece of uh, stone art that was probably 
what it would have been like 3000 years old, you know? So yeah. And, and, and in fact, one of the houses, uh, uh, they were a member of the family and their, their house actually sit was, uh, sat on half of a, of a, uh, Olmecan mound. Um, <laughs> The other, so I mean, you probably could have done an excavation of, <laughs> of their found art and stuff. And everybody is sort of, oh, I was digging a ditch and I found this. And um, so I never, I never brought any uh, booty back with me. I know a lot of guys did because uh, people would offer you these things and, and I'd be like, eh, you know, sadly, a lot, but of course, out of context, it doesn't have all that much value. And then yeah. one of the places we go to was, uh, in our district, my first place was called Las Chuapas, and we would go out to La Venta. So the, between that La Venta and Agua Dulce, so it, we would have to get on a bus and go to each one. And La Venta was really cool to me because there was this little hill, and it just looked like a hill, but it actually was a three thousand year old um, uh, Olmecan pyramid. And as far as I know, it's the only Olmecan period pyramid, or no, maybe there's some others uh, elsewhere. But but that whole area, this isthmus. The narrow Ol neck of land. Olmec, Olmecs were old enough. They they were told to be the Jaredites. You know, we're, we're talking pre-Nephite pre yeah. and Lamanite. These were the the Jaredites That's, that left yeah. at the Tower of Babel. Yeah. yeah. So. Bingo. Right. Where they went in their boats. Yeah. Yeah. Boats. Boats. yeah. Yeah. So interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you just knew enough to go, okay, this is this, but I'm not. Well, I, I was wondering how much of what you saw on the ground then made you, you know, how much maybe you had, had heard and you bought into it. But then once you got on the ground, you said, this isn't making sense or did it not make sense just from I, the story? I, to this day, I'm, I, I'm a skeptic about just about everything. I said, I, I, you know, and approached that. I said, I'm respectful. Um, I'm respectful to other people's beliefs and I, you know, that's fine. Um, but of course I'll go, mm, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I sort of have that, that mentality for just about everything. And, and actually it's, it's been good because it's opened me up so that I don't have a problem sometimes doing paradigm changes and going, okay, wow, that was, that was way off. And I'm glad I didn't invest everything. And I think that's the problem that happens to a lot of people is you just, if you put so much investment in something, um, you can't give it up. Oh, it's kind of like people who you hear this all the time. Oh, I bought this stock and then they just watch it till it go hits zero. And you're like, no, just if you can get five cents on the dollar, that's better than zero on the dollar. And and people a lot of times can't go. They do that with marriages too, with all sorts of things and go, okay. well, you know, uh, you know. It's yeah. the so, sunk cost philosophy. You've already it, sunk so much into it. So fantastic uh, professors I, I actually started off in engineering and i don't have an engineer's mentality um which i've had engineer friends and i did they make me laugh but i said i just don't really have that sort of uh and but i did well in my engineering course but then of course i go on the mission and and it uh and and of course i of course i go well I, i'll do to the two years okay so i guess i thought i would get martyr points for that and uh, oh, because that was the era where you could choose. Maybe bingo, not a lot. Could. Maybe some of our, our viewers don't know this, but back in the 80s, they said, OK, missions are now only 18 months. But for right. those that were still out, you could choose. But who's going to be the missionary that goes, oh, no, send me home. No, everybody had to extend, as they called it. So it was very short lived, like maybe a two year period. And then they went, no, nope, not enough time. 
two the years Lord ago. changed but, his mind once again. It was I, exactly. Like Nelson I, was in charge yeah. back then. But. Yeah. Yeah. But so you, of course, extended like everyone else. So you did do your full sentence. I mean, sorry, mission. You did it. So. Yeah. No, no. In the last, no, in the last half. No. And it, so my experience uh, was one of, um, uh, it's, it's kind of funny, but it's almost like total abandonment. And, and it's funny because you'll see, if, you know, your experience in the States, of course, everything's well run. It's um, it's like a perfect bureaucracy. Everybody knows their positions. And if even if some major figure in your ward apostatizes or is caught, you know, having an affair with such and such, you know, of course, the shockwaves go, but everything moves on. OK. Right. And down there, um, you go to church, uh, you know, go, you go to the meetings on Sunday and there's uh, three men and uh, and 200 women and children. And, and that's basically so pretty much if they could get the town drunk to come to church, he, he could be the branch president. <laughs> so and so it was just it was just funny um, how. And then the other interesting thing I noticed is um, converts will always bring the baggage from from where they came from. So if you had a Jehovah's Witness that converted, they still brought some elements of. Jehovah's Witness or Seventh Day Adventist, and so on and so forth. Of course, that goes back. That's that's a human phenomenon. A, a great book I read about the the uh, the Spanish Inquisition was kind of the same thing. When when of course they issue the decree that every Jew has to either leave or convert to Catholicism. Of course, a lot of them convert to Catholicism, but they're still sort of observing things on Saturdays and not eating pork. And of course, along comes Thomas de Torquemada, and he says, "Okay." Um, we're going to spy on you. And if you're doing some of that stuff, <laughs> we're going to uh, torture you until you confess. Uh, of course, it wasn't that bad. But uh, I, but anyway, that similarity of people bringing right. things in. So it was Definitely kind of an interesting. It was kind of an interesting place to go um, and just go and you just go, oh, my gosh, you know, I work so hard. And they go, of course, people up and your friends, if you, we'd call correspond with other uh, buddies that were on missions and they'd go, Oh, you're lucky you're down there where you just get all these baptisms. You go, yeah, you baptize them. And then you never see them again, you know, after that, yeah. the Sunday. Baptism. Of course it was the same way in the States, but you only baptized but, one and never saw them again. And you never see them again. <laughs> so did you already sort of speak Spanish, but now you really spoke Spanish or, or, or but you yeah, already no, kind of did a little, right? No. And plus it was like, it was, it was actually, it was, um, it was a true uh, vow of poverty. I mean, uh, I was living in a tiny little apartment with the toilet window, toilet seat on it. And basically just living like everybody else does down there, eating the same food, um, getting chronic diarrhea for a month, you know, but all those, all those sort of things, you know, everybody's like, you know, flocking was this stuff. You'd always take that. Oh, you got dysentery. Here you go. Take Blahill. I remember one time I talked to the mission president, and he sees me. He goes, "You've lost a lot of weight. You need to take some Blahill." <laughs> uh, the stories. It's only for the young, right? Who don't know any better. So, did you after your mission? Then you went back to BYU because then you were a junior, right? Is that I finished through all my years and did all that stuff? I escaped unmarried. So it's so surprising because see our audience will be interested to know. So I, uh, my husband and Todd were roommates, but this was before I met my husband. However, I had a roommate that had a huge crush on Todd because they were in the same stake. Somehow my husband and I never ran into each other. 
you guys were in my same ward and I went to church all the time. Yeah. Um, but I just kind of was disengaged. And you were I disengaged. think that, that made you yeah. appealing though. My roommate was like, Oh, he's so aloof. He's so mysterious. <laughs> What's he really about? So she would always go, let's go figure out if Todd's going to that dance or so I basically had to follow you around for almost a whole semester to support her in her crush, which obviously you don't even remember her. So, <laughs> which is okay. So yeah, it's all good. So, and then you left, you made it out, you graduated. And what did you end up graduating in? I was trying to remember. I came back. I was so far removed. I was thinking, I'm not going to, I can't pick up where I left off in calculus and all this other stuff to continue with engineering. So that I got to dumb this down. So I'll just get a business degree, get out of here. There you go. That's the answer. Get a business degree. And then the very interesting thing is that you did not go into, quote, business, but you picked an amazing career that was so perfect for you. Your accident. So, yeah, so I get out of school and, of course, um, it coincides with. Uh, oh, no. And I, so my folks had uh, moved back from Idaho while I was gone. And now they're in California. And now they're in San Diego County. And I was like, wow, I like it here. You know, it has the most perfect weather. So I thought I'll I'll, I'll bet the bank on just finding a job down there. And of course, uh, in uh, the late 90s, uh, or this would have been 89. So yeah, or super early 90s. Um, finally, something kicked in called the peace dividend. Didn't last long, but uh, so the Cold War, uh, the Berlin Wall came down, I think in late 89. And, and actually, all of a sudden, it was... Uh, uh, it was a lot of these uh, defense contractors because Southern California is full of them, General Dynamics, a lot of these big uh, uh, employers, uh, McDonnell Douglas, so on and so forth, which would eventually merge with Boeing and with another big defense contract, so on and so forth. So there actually was not a lot of jobs. And San Diego sort of reinvented itself in the ensuing decade, uh, like a lot, sort of like how Houston had to after the, the oil bust in the, of the 80s. And actually, I, I end up in in Houston. So I'm at home, and uh, my stepfather's a difficult uh, person to live with. And the favor he did for me was uh, a desire to get the heck out of the house as soon as, as, soon as I could. So um, I wasn't having any success with finding work. So I just saw an ad once at uh, Cattle Call, Continental Airlines. I just went there to find out what they paid. And next thing I know, I was on my way out to Houston for training. Wow. As and a I, I, remember, I remember telling my mother and expecting her to say, well, you just went to college. You're just going to do that. And the first thing that came out of her mouth was, do parents get uh, benefits? Of <laughs> <laughs> so, so that wasn't a problem. So then I ended up in training and then up to Newark was my first assignment. And then uh, they needed Spanish speakers down in Houston. So I went down there and then uh, there it was. And so I was uh, used to living uh, cheaply with uh, from my college years. I lived very frugally, didn't have a car. I finally bought a truck as soon as I got out of college. My stepdad co-signed with me and it was parked in San Diego and I was working in New York. And so I said, I got to get my car out here. So I actually flew out there, drove it to Albuquerque, put it in parking and then went back to work and then flew back out and got it the rest of the way. That was uh, my first uh, epic road trip. Well, no, it was after one with uh, with Tom yeah, where we broke the first down. Of many. 
Todd is a road tripper. <laughs> and I have to tell everybody that. So uh, my husband and I took advantage of his, you know, I, I agree with what your mother said. Anytime you have a friend that's connected to flying, you're like, so can you fly? So when my husband and I got married, uh, we took Todd along with us on our honeymoon <laughs> simply for the uh, the perks of being able to fly with them at a discounted rate. And we traveled around in Washington State in the Ho Forest. He was kind of our travel guide for part of our honeymoon because he's so knowledgeable about different places and flora and fauna. And so he was our little travel guide and travel buddy on our honeymoon. So not every girl gets to take two guys on her honeymoon, but I did. <laughs> before there was Uber. <laughs> you were the Uber driver before there was Uber. That's exactly right. So, ah, that's so fun. So, and that also, um, I'm trying to remember, you, Todd has a pretty amazing, interesting hobby. Um, I, I'm trying to remember, now he, he, Todd's probably going, which one are you talking about? I'm talking about bird watching, like Uber bird watching. Was it, Were you interested in that before you became a flight attendant? Or now that you had access to so many places in the world, did, did you just kind of gravitate toward that? So, so, okay, so when I grew up at Lake Tahoe, so my, my back, I, my backyard was a wilderness area. So, right. and so I, friend, my friend, uh, he was the, uh, he was the child number three of, um, of, and they were all spaced apart by 10 years. So his parents were in their 50s <laughs> when, when we were 12 and his dad had or two, he was a uh, decathlete, would have, uh, would have gone, would have gone to the Olympics in uh, 1940 or, but they were canceled because of world war two. He was a, he was uh, a decathlete for the ducks, uh, Oregon. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, and his mom was the school librarian and she was the little old bird watcher lady. And so I remembered, I remembered uh, one time they invited me to go uh, to South Lake Tahoe to go on a Christmas bird count. And, uh, and I remember thinking, wow, I don't really know my birds. And I kind of felt that was a hole in my education. So uh, anyway, it was the impetus. Well, here, now here's the funny story. When I was a kid, I uh, I, I described my vision as a uh, late period Monet, um, like the water lilies, you know, just a <laughs> complete like, blue. Um, exactly. And of course, my father, um, he thought that um, glasses were a crutch. And he literally, he literally bought me a book when I'm in the third grade on doing eye exercises. Like if you do these eye exercises, it'll strengthen your vision. And, uh, and of course, I never turned a page on him thinking, of course, I don't even know what it's like to see. Um, and so I remembered on this uh, Christmas bird count, it was so windy, we didn't see a single bird. And I remember we were in this sort of marsh area of the upper Truckee River in South Lake Tahoe. And they said, oh, there's a great blue heron. I'm thinking, where? <laughs> I couldn't even a see what? it. <laughs> a great blue heron. The first... Yeah, large bird. And yeah. I thought, yeah. That would be that would be cool to see that. So anyway, that's kind of funny how what sort of launched me into it. So um then when I um then when I had got up to uh, Idaho actually, that was my first chance to uh, oh, actually, funny enough, I was starting to get into birds at that age and studying them. And lo and behold, there was a teacher at the high school that was really into birds and even had a class, uh, a little class on ornithology you could take as an elective in uh, in uh, high school. So anyway, I kind of got hooked after that. 
So then when I went on my mission, I thought, well, I'm not supposed to uh, be bird watching. I'm supposed to, you know, be proselyting. And so I left my binoculars and my bird book behind. And um, actually, funny enough, one of my neighbors happened to be heading down and he was sort of a archaeology buff. So he brought my book down for me. Because after about after about six weeks, I'm like, gosh, I wish I'd brought my binoculars in my book. <laughs> Nothing going on here. I may as well be bird watching. Yeah, I get it. Oh, that's funny. Oh my goodness. Your your bird watching eventually got you in trouble, though. Uh, oh yeah, I guess so it, went, it went full on. Uh, so for a long time, um, it was a perfect perfect hobby for not having any money. And so as a flight attendant, I don't have any money, but I have I can fly places. So I would just uh, go, okay, I'd say I had this map of Central America go, and we started expanding. It'd be, oh, here's a national park in Honduras. Uh, I'm just going to go down there. And of course, I learned how to do all this on the mission because uh, so it actually, that's what set me up for trouble, uh, was actually feeling comfortable going into places nobody else really would, especially alone. So um, so I'd just get on a bus and take off and sometimes just go, oh, okay, there's some woods and just go up there with my tent and my sleeping bag. And I remember like my first trip was a camping trip on the Panama Canal. They have a beautiful rainforest along there that they had to keep intact because the locks only work from the fresh water. So they had to, to protect the forest, which they did. It's a beautiful rainforest. So I saw all my, my first toucans and all that kind of stuff down on there. And, and I remember I was kind of scared that first time camping and then nothing happened. And I was like, so then I just kept like getting deeper and deeper into just doing all kinds of crazy stuff and solo trips. And actually I was, didn't even know any other bird, bird watchers. I thought perhaps I was the only one in the world that was like myself, you know, this is what you think when you're young, but actually found out there were others, but most of them would, uh, had, would travel in packs. And so I finally met this guy who, uh, sort of had this idea of, of a sort of an ad hoc sort of birding group. And we would, uh, talk to each other to a, 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 a newsletter. And uh, I remember, so I only knew him by newsletter. And all of a sudden, I'm flying to Quito, Ecuador as a, as a working flight attendant one day. And all of a sudden, I see somebody with a bird book open. And I said, oh, hey, you're a bird watcher. He goes, the guy goes, that's our leader. And so I just kind of walk over to him. And, he, and he's a really friendly guy. This turns out to be my buddy, Mike. We've become very good friends after that. And, uh, and I said, oh, yeah, I, I corresponded with you. And he goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I know you. And that sort of thing. We So that's how we met was by sure coincidence that's on airplane. so random. Uh, so you'd been talking to him before, communicating, and then here he is on your he, flight. Had, he had said on his very first newsletter, we already have a trip going to Ecuador uh, if anyone wants to join us. But it was three weeks, and I couldn't get that kind of time off back then. So anyway, but so then he, later on, he had a trip to the Dominican Republic later that year. So that was the first trip that we uh, uh, went on together. And then he said, I have this huge uh, love of a group of birds called wood warblers, um, which are a new world species, uh, not to be confused with old world warblers. Um, anyway, go on and on about the, these are common names anyway. So the family's called Perulidae and they live in, and they're highly migratory. So a lot of them are uh, migrate to South America, particularly they stop in Colombia but then there's also ones we call endemics, which they just uh, they are native or, or they're indigenous to a particular area. Or you, and if they're endemic, they're unique. You're uniquely indigenous to a particular area. Let so me anyway, just say to everyone that when I say bird watcher and Todd says that, we're not talking about oh look at that. We're talking about world class 
knowledge. <laughs> We're talking about the upper echelon of bird watching. So just to make sure everybody understands if you haven't already figured it out. <laughs> Anyways. So, so anyway, I told him, I said, Oh yeah, I've gone to Colombia. And I said, Oh, I met this um, family on my last trip. And on that trip, of course, I get my camera stolen and my binoculars, but I somehow pulled it together. Instead of crying and going home, I toughed it out, went to the Andes and they, it was this preserve, and they said, oh, it's been booked out by this family that has a, a, a family reunion, but maybe they'll let you stay. And so they did, and they were cool about it. So I went up there, and then somebody even lent me a pair of binoculars, and actually I saw a spectacle bear. It was this fantastic trip, um, which is pretty pretty difficult sighting, and it was up in the in the central Andes. of, And so the one gal, her name is Dora, and she says, oh, she goes, uh, my husband, he's not here. He's from France, but... We live up in Santa Marta. And I said, oh, I've been really wanting to go to Santa Marta because it's safe. Because at this time, Colombia is kind of undergoing, well, it's starting what's going to turn into a civil war. Uh, and and so, it's, of course, this is the time I decided to start exploring uh, Colombia. And so I went up there and, they, and, and her husband gave me some direction and I got up to some areas. And so I get home and I call my now my new friend, Mike, and say, hey, guess what I saw? three species of warblers that you haven't seen. And he's like, oh my God, we have to do a trip there. So so we would, so we set up a trip there. We went back there in uh, March. And so then I kind of, uh, uh, Ecuador was my first uh, kind of it country in South America because we started flying there. And now Colombia was new and we started a route there. So now I was uh, knocking around Colombia and then I met a British guy who was doing a PhD project. And then, so now I'm totally hooked. And so we did all these trips, crazy trips. We'd get a car and then one person would drive um, uh, and the rest of us would sleep. And then we just trade off and we, this car was just continuously moving and we just go all around the country. And so it kind of got to be intoxicating and you start, you start to feel sort of invincible. And so eventually uh, things sort of unraveled in Colombia. And I realized this and I was kind of done I said, okay, this is probably the last trip. And then I had this buddy um, that I'd met through this ad hoc uh, birding group. And he lived in New York uh, City uh, with his wife. They were both uh, researchers in uh, both PhDs from uh, Berkeley and UCLA. Uh, no, from UCLA. He went to Berkeley and I think she went uh UCLA. But they both got their PhDs. And so I met him on a trip to Africa. I mean, this is where I'm meeting all my friends in weird places. On, on these trips that we we're putting together. So he would call me up sometimes say, hey, I got three days off or a three day weekend. Um, uh, I found a cheap ticket to Guayaquil. You want to meet me down there and we'll go figure something out. So we were doing that. And finally, he cut, we come down to one uh, four day weekend and he says, I got a four day weekend. He goes, where can we go? And I said, well, we've been to Peru. We've been to, you know, the place we can do. Um, how about Colombia? And actually his mother was from Colombia and he used to go there as a kid. And hadn't been there in a long time. And he says, oh, I was kind of thinking the same thing. And I said, well, it's kind of dodgy right now, but I think we can figure something out um, that some safer areas that I'd already been to. So we we went ahead and did the thing and we enlisted two other friends. Uh, one of them was my uh, indefatigable um, former nun friend, Louise, who was a retired school teacher. And I used to call her up and say, hey, you want to go on a birding camping trip in Peru? We'll get some mules and go up and camp in the mountains for two weeks. And she'd go, sure. And <laughs> these are the kind of trips that we're doing. And so he gets her to come along. So uh, this one's a road trip. 
because he's trying to see as much stuff in four days. So we're driving around. Everything's good. Last day, we're going up this road and uh, uh, kind of left a little too late. I and mean, we still left at like four in the morning, but we should have left at three in the morning. Now the sun's coming up. We're looking for some birds. They start singing really early in the morning. So you want to get there. I, I, I've learned how to use tape recorders. You tape their songs and then you play it back and you can lure them out that way. So this is kind of key that we're getting there earlier in the morning and we're running late and all of a sudden there's a truck blocking the way. And anyway, um, so my friend Pete is going, can you move the car? And everybody's acting really suspicious, so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden, um, said, let me see. I said, I, I don't feel good. I said, I've never saying I don't feel good. There's something kind of weird here. Let's just turn around and leave. But anyway, he was persistent. So finally I get out of the car. Just that moment I see somebody in military sort of uh, camo coming down the mountain. And uh, so as it turns out, um, uh, it was the start of a, a 30, what, 33 days uh, uh, being uh, captured by a uh, by uh, FARC guerrillas. It was a sort of a communist uh, ideolo ideology separatist group uh, trying to overthrow the government or establish themselves. And uh, they, uh, at that time, they mostly extorted money from Colombians. Um, uh, their, sort of their policy, according to them, was it was only for people from Colombia, and it was 10% uh, of, um, of their net worth. So I guess they believe in tithing, right? Yeah. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> they had it right. But when they kidnapped people from other countries, they held them for much more money. And that's kind of how they funded everything. Is that? I, if I had been involved in any poli policy or or proselytizing, we would have been executed. So, in fact, I think if I remember when I went on my mission, there they were sending um, uh USA citizens to Colombia and eventually they stopped because I think two US missionaries were murdered there yeah. warnings I remember that and so, and did that and then they they actually eventually established an MTC down there for and so it had to all be um you know in-house and well, actually even when I was in Mexico, it was trending towards that so so they took you they just drug you from the car and took you somewhere or did they I never gave them reasons to drag me or beat me. So people always say that. Um, basically, they had they they had a well run uh, business. Um, uh, this this was their major financing. So remember, the Cold War's done in '89. So they used to get their money, a lot of money, funneled to them through Cuba from the Soviets. And now this is all cut off. So now they're having to sort of self fund. And this is before GoFundMe, you know, and all that. <laughs> you know. They're, so they're just going, okay, they ran extortion, protection, you know, classic uh, mafia, whatever, you know, where you go, okay, or what we call protection money. Okay, we'll let you grow your coca, but you give us a cut. Or or if they ran a town, sometimes if they ran the town, then they would get anybody that had a business. Or if you had cattle, we're going to get we're gonna get a, a portion of, of the proceeds. So, and, and basically they just, uh, they stated that we are the official government, uh, it, which in a lot of cases, they were the de facto government because the government had become so, or the central government had become so corrupt in Colombia, like it, like it happened in Peru and like other countries where they just finally would just um, 
consolidate around the major cities and say, okay, we'll at least run our cities. Uh, but it was pretty dangerous for anyone just to leave town because all of a sudden it was run by <laughs> by highwaymen. Except it went, these were the highwaymen were the were the was the the rebel groups. So, so and how so many of you just, were there that they took at one time? And I mean, uh, did you, it, did you how did you feel? Or were you just was, like terrified? Or what? No, it was it was funny because. Um, uh, the precursor to this uh, six months earlier, um, so this I want to say was it was end of March or no, yeah, or or April. It was April, and thick about six months earlier, right around Thanksgiving, Louise, the nun, had been with me, and we were in a remote part of Peru, and some banditos followed us out of town and waited till we got to the mountain pass, and then they they came after us with shotguns and put a shotgun to my head and took my money and all this stuff and i mean and i was just kind of like whoa that was just like heavy duty for me and uh it really rattled me and and so that was of course still fresh on my mind when this happened and i remember uh so they took us out of our car we had a rental car which we never saw again i, I to this day i don't know what happened to it um we uh they put us in another car that they had appropriated from a, a guy that was running a sort of a taxi service call it collective taxi between this remote town and market which so was it was town you and mike and louise and mike was not there it was louise pete pete it, it's my friend i met in africa with the wife they were um phd and 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 then uh uh then another friend tom okay, and tom so was this Tom was this guy who had figured out, he figured out he lived in a rent control department that he paid $300 a month for in New York City. And he literally was, um, he would go bird watching every single day in Central Park. And he was like a staple of that whole scene, the whole Central Park scene, which is actually, there's a book about it. it was, and funny enough, when this happened, one of the things he came up to me, he said, I'm supposed to go to the book signing of the book that this, uh, she's a, a columnist for a nature columnist for, of all things, the Wall Street Journal. And her name is Marie Wynn. And she was writing this book called Red Tails in Love, which is about these red-tailed hawks in Central Park. And of course, Tom is a central person in this in this book. And he's supposed to go to the book signing. And now he's worried he's not going to make it back. And I just said, um, that should really be the least worries right now. <laughs> we got to get out of this thing alive. Wow. <laughs> Jeez. I said, but I think you're in denial, kind of. You're just like, I got to go home. I left something in the oven. You know, you can't imagine that your life's about to drastically, drastically change. You just have no experience. So, speak Spanish, and my friend Louise, she doesn't either. I don't know why. She's had has every reason to speak, but she never did. And her parents were Italian immigrants, and she didn't even speak Italian. In fact, I said one time, she said, "This friend of mine, she always signs her letters off with this acronym, with this." Um, and I don't know what it means, uh, you know, like TTFN was like Tata for now that, you know, when this first came out, right. I said, well, what is, is it CIAO? Oh, said, how funny. <laughs> she really didn't speak it. Like, that's really amazing for, uh, for an Italian, uh, whose parents are Italian, not to understand what that means. Oh, that's funny. She's rolling in her grave right now. Cause she would get so mad when I tell the story. Yeah, that's hilarious. Okay, so they take you out of the the rental car that we don't know for. Maybe you have a fee somewhere. Who knows? You don't know. <laughs> oh, and they, 
he said, and I remembered I laughed because they said, I, I kind of saw the writing on the wall. I said, okay, we're toast. And I don't know, this is bad. Yeah. And, and funny enough, at first I was, uh, am I going to make it to work on time? And of course, by yeah. the first, uh, and I thought I need to, I need to talk to whoever the head people are. There's some sort of mistake going on here. Cause yeah. you know, and anyway, so when we finally met the head honcho, uh, so the next, oh, so the next point, so they put us in this other car that they've taken from, and we drive, they drive us for all day long, way back on this dirt road until it practically ends. And the last bit we have to walk. And, and then we, of course, now, now we're back then there's this, uh, all the, their guerrilla troops are bivouacked in the, in the forest with these camo tarps and everything. And they give us a sleeping bag, a place to sleep. And I wake up the next morning and of course, at this time, I had uh, contact lenses, which I'd taken out. So now I'm seeing the world in late period Monet again. And uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, and there's all these people milling around. And so then my friend Pete goes, he had got up early and he said, oh, he goes, what happened after they got us? They were the truck that was blocking the way was full of guerrilla troops and they were going down to the highway and they literally set a car ablaze and and started a roadblock and then started robbing people on the highway. And then they grabbed people they thought they could take for ransom and drag them back up. So now those people are with us. So they, on that day they captured 19 people up the highway. And so, so then the next couple of days we're just, um, we're sleeping in a sugar mill. Um, so it's open air, but a roof over our heads and they would have these big uh, pans that they reduced the sugar in to make a, sugar loaves or whatever they call it, like panelas, but the word they use in Spanish, I don't know. But anyway, so we're sleeping in one of these uh, places. And then gradually some of them are ne negotiating for their release. And so then they asked us, who's negotiating for your release? We're like, we don't have anybody to negotiate. And they said, uh, do you want the U.S. Embassy or the International Red Cross? And I just said, you guys are under this assumption, like I go to the embassy to ask for permission to come here. I go, I don't you only talk to them when you're in deep doo-doo and and of course i don't have their number but i said uh, we'll go with international red cross so i wanted to disassociate myself with uh, working for any aspect of the u.s government because i wasn't and you know and blah 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 so anyway so they eventually uh um released some of the people and uh, it was kind of interesting as one of the people they released uh so this little international red cross helicopter shows up and whisks them away and then of course, our captors, uh, they all had their own personal radios and they even have had their own radio station that's run by the political wing of of the of the guerrilla and uh, organization of the FARC. And they would hear the story and they'd say to the person that just left our presence and said, uh, did you see the Americans? Because now they're talking about the four Americans because they advertised to the world that they'd captured four Americans and they claimed that we could be working for the DEA or the CIA or the yeah. FBI. And that if they found this to be true, they were going to execute us yeah. is what told us. And of course, um, they would look at us and laugh and go, yeah, we know you're not any of those organizations, you know, especially Louise. You know, I mean, they don't they don't they don't hire ex-nuns. Ex-nuns. You know? <laughs> it would be a great cover, right? Nobody would believe it. So. So anyway. So. um so they'd interview this person and they'd say, nope, we didn't see him. We're like, yeah, you did. We just saw you. So we were, yeah. So we realized that they were under a lot of pressure to, uh, to not tell uh, people, um, you know, whatever. 
And so but then at eventually some point, started... at some point, the word got out because I remember I was working at BYU at the time. And instead of working, I was scrolling through the paper and I saw a headline that said, Mark Todd, they got your name mm. backwards because, you know, it is two first names, but and listed some other people. Yeah. And said ha has been kidnapped. And I remember calling my husband and going, I mean, what are the odds? Mark Todd, bird watching Columbia, you know, so that's when we started getting involved and we contacted the local news here. And of course, our angle was former BYU graduate kidnapped by FARC. And they loved that angle, you know, return missionary, former B. So they kept that story alive here for, for quite a while. Right. And they, they didn't wonder what my calling was. Yeah. Well, you know, it was interesting because and I won't ruin the end of the story. I'll tell that part of it later. But we definitely went on the news a lot. We showed pictures of you and we just kept saying he's a BYU student. That's what we kept stressing, you know, so that people here would remain interested and maybe write letters or maybe whatever. And I think we were talking to your mom or your sister at the same time. And they were saying, you know, nobody needs to appear like they should appear like they have any money or anything that they can give to these people. And I said, well, that's no problem for me to appear like I don't have any money because I work at BYU. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's when it was scary and real when I realized, wow, <laughs> they're trying to get people to pay for you and your life is in danger. So we were very worried. <laughs> I finally had my audience with, with the head honcho. His name was Comandante Romagna. So, you know, he's this badass. Um, you know, he's trying to look every part like he's, he's Che Guevara reincarnated. You know, he's got the everything going on, you know, the the beret and yeah, like uh, Apocalypse Now, right? He's back there in the forest. Ugly <laughs> beard. He's probably, I think he's still alive. I think they, um, they, he probably, they probably let him go to Cuba because I think when they signed their agreement a, a couple of years ago, somebody would gun him down for sure. And, you know, because he, you know, he killed people. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of what happens. So, Dan, that cycle of violence, they just, I think they let him leave. Anyway, so he uh, he basically looked and went, um, well, we're asking five million for you. So um, and I kind of was like, but I just explained to you, I said, you couldn't have found four four random Americans with a lower birth. I said, we basically three of us have a negative net worth. And I said, I, I get poorer every day I'm here because I'm not working and I still have to pay my rent. <laughs> so on and so forth. And then Louisa, I said, well, and this woman is a, a retired school teacher, you know, and she has a house and it's a modest house. I said, are you going to take her house away from her? You know, and he just said, well, we want five million dollars for you. And so and I always said that was kind of pretty depressing day. And so anyway, and then after that, uh, they they kept, kept this sort of little gulag system in the forest um, in this sort of safe area where the Columbia military had uh uh, no intention of ever going. It was wasn't safe for them, and they weren't going to risk their lives. So, so they actually had ceded all this area in remote parts to uh, to the um, uh, to the guerrilla. So there they were, um, uh, and so now they had to take us because where they had captured us wasn't in their safe area. So over the ensuing ten days, they slowly were moving us back. To the area where they could keep us into long-term um uh detention and were you these, on uh, foot sort of... you were just marching but and 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 actually i mean some of it was crazy uh so the first thing was we're at one of the stops and um i hear this i remember that morning we uh so it seemed like this is what 
kind of how how it would go. They send a couple of guys ahead of us, our our little platoon that watched us, and there was nine of us or eight of us in our group, and we pretty much had eight guys watching eight of us. And then somebody would go ahead and sort of evacuate a little house that was out in the boonies with, you know, subsistence farmers and they'd get them out and then we would occupy their house for a day. And then we'd move to another house and just slowly sort of just sort of hopscotching our way back to wherever. And we could tell because the houses, you could tell if they were, had been recently occupied just by, you know, it looked like they had hastened these people out. And then at one point, um, we're, we're listening to the radio. So they all have their radios. And one day I hear this voice and I go, I know that voice. It's who is that? And she's talking about our case, about the Americans. And her name is uh, Liliana. And she says, um, and so of course I'm listening intently. And then after that, Pete's wife comes on. And so I'm so glued to this. And so when we get out, um, one of the people that was captured, he was this Italian guy who was married to a Colombian and they had grabbed him on the, off the highway, he was uh, driving his boat that he owned, co-owned with his accountant. And of course, they saw this is money, so they grabbed him and his accountant. They released the accountant because he negotiated for the release of both of them. That's kind of how the how it would work. And um, so anyway, uh, he uh, he comes up to me and goes, "Have you seen Tom? Have you seen Tom?" And I said, "No." I said, "I've been listening to the." He goes, "Well, well we think he's." he's escaped. And I said, well, then let's keep our mouth shut. He goes, yeah, yeah. But he goes, I'm worried. I'm worried. And so anyway, we kept our mouth shut and then it took them about um, probably two hours before they realized he was gone. And so then they, they forced us all into the house and said, and ran off with a couple of them to go look for Tom. And then they come back after a real long period of time and said, um, okay, you guys need to come here. Uh, we found Tom. He tried to escape and we found him. We killed him. So they told us. And then, they said, oh, we're, we're, get all your stuff, we're leaving. So then we had to leave the house and we had to sleep outside that night and it rained and it was really cold and um, we just had to like big, make a big human pile sort of to uh, not die of hy hypothermia. And then the next day we got up, you know, hardly slept a wink and we had to climb up this ridge and they had ropes. And um, so we were actually just trailblazing at this point to get into the next little stream valley or river valley. And, Can I ask and, how Louise is doing? I mean, she's a much older in oh, her yeah, 60s, she, right? How is she? I mean, I know she's obviously very fit and active, but still, being that age, how was she doing? So she, she did. She was doing fine. But it was the thing that day when we were going over the ridge. First, one of the Colombian guys, is, um, he slipped and fell, and I'm pretty sure he cracked a rib. And then the uh, this other guy, it's interesting, he got integrated into our group and they somebody had kidnapped him off of his farm and then sort of sold him or sold the rights to him to, to the FARC. So they even had like <laughs> how crazy this whole thing was, like almost like um, what would you call it? Um, uh, like an indentured servant or something? Or? But the communists are into outsourcing as well. So that's yeah. kind of fascinating. So, <laughs> They really truly understood the the concept of markets, and <laughs> it's kind of made, it kind of made me laugh. Uh, it still does. And anyway, so they so they outsourced. So this outsourced guy, and he used to be a Texaco executive, and he had a fruit farm that he was invested because his wife had um, uh, uh, MS, and so he was totally bedridden. So he could keep a full time nurse down in Colombia, and that's where his wife was from. So. 
So that was his deal there. And, so, and somebody had grabbed him, stuffed him in his trunk, drove him, and then sold him to the, you know, probably collected 500 bucks. And then now the FARC had control of him. And then they forced him to cross the Andes. And then he somehow met up with us. So then he became part of our group. And I remember that day he he fell and he, we had these little bundles that were a rain, was like a rain tarp. And they gave us a change of clothes, like two pairs of underwear and an extra pair of pants and toothbrush and so on and so forth. So we'd carry them like hobos on our back, like backpacks. We'd bundle everything up. So he dropped it and it fell off a cliff. And so he never saw it again. And um, that sort of thing happened. And then that, so then we spent the night in the forest. And then the next day we, um, we had done a long day walking and it was, it had been raining all day. And as we were getting to a certain point and Louise always, one thing that she didn't have was a good sense of balance. She was always falling. And in this case, she thought she had a good grip on a tree branch, which she was trying to negotiate around on this little path that they and she slipped and fell and she just went sledding down the mountain and i was standing right behind her so i just go okay well now i lost tom now there there goes louise and i could hear there was a river down below that was full of water from the rain and i thought she's gonna go around the river and drown and get washed away and uh so i dropped my bag and i ran down to see if i could find her and when i got down actually the the stream hadn't filled up enough and it was the current was on the far side, so she had fallen in some mud. And when I saw her, I said, uh, "Can you stand up?" And she's like, "Where am I?" And I said, "You're in Colombia." And she goes, "What am I doing in Colombia?" <laughs> I said, uh, "Let's not get into that now." And she goes, "Who are these people with the guns?" And I said, um, "What's your name?" And she said, "Louise Augustine." I said, oh, "Okay, well, you don't have total amnesia, but..." Um, a little and then after that, she had to get up and we and it took us about two hours to get her across the river. Um, I, I told them, I said, we need to put up a tent and treat her for shock. And they said, oh, no, we got to get across this river. It's going to fill up with water and we have to get past it before. And they they felled two trees over the river to make a bridge. So literally you are standing on the lower log, the lower tree, uh, you know, uh, trunk. Uh, to stepping on that to get across and the other one was sort of your handrail and the water was uh, up to your chest so and it was a lot of water force so it was kind of this um you know daring <laughs> river crossing and so we finally got past it and on the other side there was just this big slack of water like a big whirlpool but it was um about chest high so we had to get through there and then we had to clamber over a rock and she has to do all this stuff which we later found out she had broken eight ribs and cracked her pelvis so after that point she was in extreme pain and uh and they had nothing to give her i think she got all of about an aspirin for that whole time and then eventually because of her condition they would have us ahead by about a day and she was always lagging behind they tried to get a horse for her but the horse couldn't even walk on the trails because the the holes with the roots and whatnot you couldn't even get uh so so literally they were carrying her and you can imagine she said the the one uh, one of the gorilla gals pretty sturdy gal she would she said she would grab her arms like this and carry her like a backpack so you can imagine her her lungs getting crushed against her back yeah it's just off, absolutely awful and so eventually she uh we we caught up with her and then when we we finally got 
to the area where the concentration camp and I'd requested, I said, wait, she's got to see some sort of medic. And I remembered I was there to translate and the little medic goes, Oh no, she's fine. I go, you don't have, you didn't take an x-ray. You don't know. I said, she's got, she's hearing gurgling in her lungs. She probably has pulmonary edema and all this other stuff. And you're going, she's fine. Anyway. So around this time they released, um, they released uh, the Italian guy and he was under orders not to uh, tell anybody uh, that he was with us, but he went ahead and spilled the beans. And um, I never really talked to him about this, but I suspect he was, he, you know, you learn a lot about people. You tell your life stories. Well, his life story was he was kind of a bad boy as a kid um, in Southern Italy. And then he cleaned his life up and then he met the love of his life, his wife and had two kids. And so he was on his knees every day with his rosary and so on and so forth. And I think because Louise uh, was Catholic as well, that he sort of felt a, a moral obligation, you know, or duty to, to do that. So and it worked out for us. And in the end, um, I think that him spilling the beans because they were always insisted that Louise was in good shape. And he said, no, if they don't get her out real soon, she's probably going to die. So then there was a lot of pressure on on the gorilla because they had already admitted that we weren't they admitted that they knew we were not um, agents of the U.S. Uh, government. So and then they said, uh, according to their own rules, that they couldn't extort money out of us. So they're like, OK, what are you waiting for? So the International Red Cross was putting pressure on them. And uh, so I guess to save face, that's ultimately what they did. They finally released us and they released uh, Louise the day before us. And then we got out the next day. Wow, we have we have some video. Yeah, yeah, we have some pictures. Um, there's a video that we're going to link in the show notes of their release. But we have some pictures <laughs> that Landon's going to share his screen. I took some still shots from the from the video. And I'll, I'll, while Landon's pulling that up, I'll tell you the funniest part. I mean, to me, if there was anything funny about it, um, and that was that. So this whole time in Utah, my husband and I had been going on the news and explaining that this. BYU student, returned missionary, was kidnapped. People were contacting us. Everybody was talking about it. So there's some footage from CNN. Um, I couldn't find that when I was looking, but it shows Todd. And they're like, how are you? Are you okay? Into the mic, he goes, I just want a beer. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, kind of shot goes your... the whole cover. there goes the whole story we were trying to build <laughs> about you, right? As the but I would say active LDS person might think they wanted a beer. So that's right. So here's, you can just tell us what these pictures are, Todd. This is probably right when, when they came to get you or were walking you to the Red Cross, right? Yeah. So, so actually they had had a skirmish between the, the FARC and the Colombian military. So the military, this is the other element that was going on. Of course, the military's uh, losing face. So they're like trying to put on a bold, like, oh, so they're, they have a little perimeter down below and they kind of had some skirmishes. So the International Red Cross deemed it wasn't safe for them to do the typical, they said they're typical, a handover where they go, okay, here, here they are. And they, they take them, but they wouldn't go to the place. So we basically just interacted with um, some uh, uh, either journalists, you know, these, the brave guys, the brave journalists, the real journalists that go out and it really risks their lives. That explains it because on the video you are talking to journalists and I thought that's very interesting. So you can probably just scroll through land and they're just some yeah, shots and, from the. And I will say when I watched this, the, the amazing thing was one, how calm you were. I mean, you, yeah. you, you didn't seem. Oh, you know, that was the biggest were, sigh of, of relief uh, in my well, life. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah I can imagine. But uh, in the middle of the handoff, and, and we'll put a link to the video, oh. the rounds start going off, and it, uh, it's like they're mortaring or something. There's some pretty big explosions. Yeah, in yeah you're like duck and cover in one right. part. Yeah. yeah. Colombian military, is so this is kind of how cynical everything is. So the FARC is basically going, they're kind of using us as like a, almost like a football match where we're where the we're the linebackers and they're just kind of following us and the scrimmage line is moving with us as we're going and so now the military starts shooting mortar fire over our heads um so yeah you would hear the you'd hear the the mortar go out the little and then of course then we'd all run for a ditch until it exploded and then and then run along in fact it was one of the journalists who said uh we better we better get going after they did the interviews they said okay yeah. we better get and so they actually was a journalist that let us out. Wow. Yeah. Show the next slide, Landon, because I think it, okay. it kind of goes along with what the video. So that shows some of the people. Are those the military that were there? Those are those the FARC? Where I can't really. If they're wearing rubber boots, they're. That's how you tell them apart. Rubber boots mm -hmm. are, are gorilla, and so I'm sure they're gorilla. Those yeah. look rubber. Yeah, it looks like rubber boots. There. Yeah. These are. You know, take stills from a video in in 1980s, so it's not. Yeah, it's not no, the you're going to want to watch the video that we've linked. So that's the part where you're kind of hiding, and in the video, there's like, pew, pew, so and you're like, ah, so yeah, yep. yeah. We're walking like this dirt road, so the barter fire is going over our heads, and um, and that yeah, that's what's going on. And the, oh, funny enough, those glasses, um, my mother and my sister found my. Uh, where I got my glasses and were able to get a pair of glasses made for me. And I, they were delivered to me by, by the FARC as I, for right in time for my interview. <laughs> so you were completely blind the rest of the time. Oh. Like you said, Monet, I would, I would die in that scenario. My vision is horrible, but you got the glasses at the end and, and lovely late eighties glasses. They were so Here's a kind of blurry, but this looks like you're walking down. Was it maybe like a stream or you something? You were in a stream, yeah. You yeah. were walking up a stream bed or something to get out. Yeah, no, and, and actually to get to this point for this interview, we actually, we walked all day. Uh, I was probably seven in the morning. We were eating breakfast. He said, get your stuff and get out. And I remember I had a pair of my Converse All-Stars, and I threw them to, my, uh, to Lee, who was the American guy, the Texaco executive guy, retired. And and we both shared a toothbrush too because he uh, lost it in his bundle. So, um, so I gave him my toothbrush. <laughs> Just some of the mortars from the uh, that they were firing off or they carrying. Uh, yeah. And here you are walking down the road uh, to the rescue. Yeah, no, so we're being escorted by um, with with press right here with AP or Reuters, whatever, whoever they had, they had guys that did a lot of, um, a lot of work down there, but it was true and truly a dangerous uh, place. Now, now finally, uh, this is the international red cross. So they, they put us in a Jeep and then drove us about eh, an hour and a half. And then we got to the town of Via Vicencio and then we put us in an airplane and flew us to Bogota. And then uh, we went to the M to the embassy for debrief and then and they took us to a hotel and we were out the next day. We, uh, and then we're, go ahead. If, if you watch the video, uh, you know, one of the reasons we didn't try to play the video is a lot of it's in Spanish and you were very fluent Spanish speaker. Clearly you were talking to everyone in Spanish. 
So we felt like it wasn't real helpful because you couldn't understand what was going on if you didn't speak Spanish. But you you can, you know, after hearing the story, if you watch the video, it, it's it's pretty interesting to see. Yeah, available online if you just, yeah. You, yeah, if somebody wanted to see it, they could. Uh, yeah, we'll throw it up were, there. So where did you go first? They flew you out to? No, they flew us on. They took us to Via Vicencia, which is the little town on this on the Meta River, which flows into the Orinoco. So it's a different basin than the Amazon. And goes it comes out near Trinidad and Tobago. That's where um where the Orinoco Delta is. So that's the river system. And they call it the 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 Llanos, the plains of so it's a lot of it's grassland with palms and stuff. Uh not not like a true whatever, but that's the part of uh of Colombia that we are in. And uh so then Via Vicencio, which is the sort of the hub at the base of the Andes, and then you go up uh, up a road and over a small pass, and then the, then you're on a, a little altiplano where Bogota is, which sits at about nine thousand feet. The city does, and yeah. so the, instead of that, flew us. They had a little, actually they had a plane that they had expropriated from from drug runners, and um, and, and that's how the 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 international red cross got the plane that way sort of like you know it's civil asset forfeiture laws that sort of thing so then they flew us into bogota and then they had a, a plane i was oh, sorry they had a car ready to just whisk us out and take us to the uh, embassy how did your employer i mean you're, you're you're gone for 33 days you didn't show up for the flight what was there did when did they find <laughs> out <laughs> no well the funny thing there was um so, so, um, uh, yeah, Rebecca knows my friend, Mike. So, oh yeah, we talked about him. He's the guy I meet on a plane, um, by, by sheer coincidence who kind of set up. So, you know, it is kind of interesting to explain, especially to younger people who, um, <laughs> how, what technology was back then. In fact, I, we used to have, uh, I used to have all these backup plans because my friend Mike never had them. And I said, okay, here's the plan. If we don't find each other, then we would call his wife back in St. Louis and she could say, okay, he's in town, he's here, he's there. So I'd always have these little backup things. And actually, the funny thing with Mike and me, we were good friends, but of course, I didn't know his family at this point, and he didn't know my family. And so I always kind of wondered what would happen. But of course, we knew a lot about each other. So he knows that I have a sister named Kelly, just from our conversation. He knows that she manages a Taco Bell in, in Reno, Nevada. So he goes... He calls information. Oh, so oh, so here here we go. So Pete and and all of us are supposed to come back to Newark Airport. We don't show up, and his wife was there to pick us up. And she's like, "That's weird." So she talks to airline personnel, and they say, "Well, we can't tell you who is on the list. All we're going to tell you is they weren't on the flight." So she doesn't know what to do. So she calls Mike, uh, who's the person we all talk to, and and she goes, "Have you heard from Todd?" And he goes, "No." He goes, "What's going on?" He goes, "They didn't show up." He goes. Oh, why don't you find out if they turn their rental car in? And so he goes, oh, that's a good idea. So she calls. She finds out we haven't turned in a correct rental car. Okay, so she has to go to bed that night. So all this goes down on a Sunday. The news cycle back then was not 24-7. So it would take a whole day of lag. So then the next day, it makes the news in Bogota. And then on Tuesday, it finally makes the news. So we're supposed to show up on, on, on Monday. We don't show up. Okay, now on the Tuesday morning news, now it's the Americans that have been abducted. 
And so he goes, my friend Mike, who had been to this actual site where I got kidnapped, he says, oh, they say they have four Americans and they're in that spot. It's them. It has to be them. So he feels I so he calls he calls Continental Airlines, who I work for, to tell them that one of your flight dance is going to be there because he's been kidnapped. <laughs> and uh, they're probably like, yeah, sure. That's an elaborate excuse. And, uh, and then <laughs> I haven't he, heard that one before. <laughs> I, you get a paper <laughs> for originality. And so then he says, then he thinks he's going to call my family and he doesn't know them. So he goes to the yellow pages um, or calls the information and says, give me all the numbers for the Taco Bells in Reno. So he, he gets them and he gets call, He starts with number one called, Hey, do you have a manager named Kelly? Nope. Next one, do you have a manager named Kelly? And they go, oh yeah, she managed to her over in Sparks. So then he calls her. So that's how he he that's how my family finds out. Then my sister, of course, they both. Then um, then with the company he calls them and says, hey, um, he gives a story and they're like, uh, okay, great. Um, we'll we're thank you for the information. And then he calls back the second day because he thinks that they're kind of thinking he just made this stuff up. And then he goes when he called them back the next day, they were actually on it. So. I think um, I think that that they must have uh, the, the embassy must have uh, gotten word of it, and of course the FBI or whoever you know usually they have somebody in the embassy that uh, works for one of the you know intelligence gathering yeah. of course. So I think that's how. So so at that point they were able to contact the security department. Um, but you know I mean a lot of people say were you at work and I said no I was on my days off. So um, I think the important distinction was that they never. Uh, they never asked, um, uh, they never said, asked it or implied that my employer was, um, you know, I wasn't representing my employer there and kind of went in that direction. I'd wondered if they thought maybe they could extract money from your, your employer, you know, big airline, uh, you know, maybe we can get some money. Did they know what you yeah. did? They didn't. Yeah. They never went there. So kind of go dark in that situation. So how did they, what was the trajectory to get you out of the country then? They flew you two and then two and then what? You're just in your living room going, well, that was weird. <laughs> I'm just trying to picture. <laughs> they actually gave, um, I say Continental was actually very good about it. They actually had, uh, my, my mom said they had offered to even fly her down there and stay in a hotel. But uh, um, she was like, what, what, what good am I going, what, what am I going to accomplish just by being down there? So, and of course the, 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 the suggested was to, make it sound like um no one's going to bail us out basically you know you kidnapped uh, of course of course as much as i talked and that became the joke it was uh it was uh the reenactment of the ransom of red chief uh that's what my friend mike said and then actually uh i would i actually you know time magazine would always have that little quotable section and they actually i got my name in time magazine and it said because i i admitted they said well what did you talk to the girl about? And I said, I just talked to him about birds because, you know, they were trying to say I was uh, uh, an agent of the government. And and then I said, and of course, they weren't interested in anything I had to say about birds. And I said, I think I bored <laughs> them to death. So that I think I bored them to death. That is a strategy right there. Just talk warblers and talk <laughs> and pretty soon people's eyes will glaze over. No offense to other bird watchers, but eventually only the diehards can take it. <laughs> New world or old? Oh my God. See, this is why I'm saying new world or old world. That's exactly right. Nope. And so I would say birding saved your life. That's right. Because they just thought, oh, this guy. Oh, come on, this guy. Right. Wow. That's amazing. It, it, it was your way of I giving just, the captor the bird. 
Wow. So how, so then they flew out and you ended up, where did you go back home with your mom or where did you, since you weren't living at home, I mean. No, no. So my own company paid, they gave me positive space. And and I remember the, the, the local, whatever you call it, um, uh, the station, they were, I never got along with them. And I came to Colombia so many times and you'd think they'd be like, oh, that's so cool. You love our country. And they would just always, I'd show up and they go, you know, the flight's full today. And I'm like, yeah, I know. And I'm space available. I'm on the list. Right. But that's kind of how they treated me. And so to, uh, four of my friends were working the flight to take me home. And that morning they said, what the lead he goes, he goes, yeah, they said, they said, oh yeah, Todd might be on your flight. And think might. And he said, like, you're going to bump him after all he's been through. <laughs> sorry, sir. Flight. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. Oh, oh solved. Yeah. Sorry. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe <laughs> no, another day. They, they actually had, um, they actually had uh, authorization from, uh, from downtown, you know, from corporate to give me a positive and actually put me in first class. And I felt bad because I actually bumped somebody out and I didn't really need to be in first class. It wasn't a big deal. I think I would have been that for me. over a month. You deserve a little first class, you know, maybe a warm yeah. hand towel or a muffin, maybe is something that you deserve. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. And then you did, you did various news shows. I remember like people were talking to you in the paper and stuff, I think, didn't you? I did actually the funny thing was and it kind of was where I didn't um I had offers and you know Pete and I kind of felt the same way because we collaborated with a writer from outside magazine which you can pull that up on their archives I think they he called the thing birds of prey but he kind of I saw we'll link that for sure like um a new form of extreme um like extreme birding like like we like we throw have cavalier um uh attitude towards safety and and that wasn't true at all we i always you know i mean i i went to somewhat dangerous areas but once you understand the lay of the land um you know you can negotiate through it um you know the picture that's painted in the press often is um that you know you take you take something like colombia it's a big country so um you know as i say remember when there were these tourists that were um, going off, driving off on the wrong exit in Miami and a couple of them got killed. It, this is in the nineties. And so would you say that everyone in the United States is unsafe because this happened in a bad neighborhood in, in Florida? No, that's absurd. Um, and that, and you find that in a lot of countries too, that things are regional, um, you know, the, the centers of violence and, and Colombia was very much that way. There were areas that were under control and that weren't in control. And actually I had a very good feel of that. And actually the place where we were uh, kidnapped or grabbed was actually an area that was not controlled by them. They just happened to have made a, uh, uh, an advanced, uh, actually past the Colombian military. Um, the Colombian military was actually guarding a, uh, a radio tower on the, on this mountain. They literally had, had worked their way around them. So, that's this so didn't put a, a quash on your lifestyle. I hear you you go to Papua New Guinea and and go out with the <laughs> headhunters or the. <laughs> I, I, no, actually, we kind of we kind of had said that at the end. We just said, um, you know, you can't you can't let the you can't let that uh, win over. So we actually immediately scheduled a trip 
the three of us actually got together, not not with Tom, but with Louise, Pete, and I. We did a trip to uh, Chile, like a little road trip for old times' sake. Once uh, once she had gotten better, and uh, and I think Pete and I we went to, on a trip to Peru. I had uh, some good friends down there, and we did a camp camp trip up in the Andes um, within two months after we were released. So so we figured, yeah, you, know, you just got to go right back into gear, and then you know you can't let you can't let the fear factor, you know, turn you into, you know, you're just going to isolate and then go paranoid and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, no, so, I, just, and I think that was the, oops, go that's ahead. the best therapy. I yeah, no. And I was going to no, say said, that. I, what life lessons did you gain from this? And I think that's exactly it. You just keep on keeping on in the biggest way. And, and I know I've told you about Todd Landon, how he goes everywhere. He does everything. A couple of years ago during COVID, he and my husband went out and, you know, and I know Tom is a little nervous when Todd's like, well, just stop the car and put the tent right here. You know, and Tom's like, what? You know, it is definitely a lifestyle that not everybody can experience. Art is the is for my perspective. So he was sleeping in the car and yeah. I'd say, how did you sleep? I didn't sleep at all. I go, well, the car is uncomfortable. Like you, I had brought an extra tent. You have a tent. Yeah. And then he goes <laughs> down outside of Peoch, Nevada, if anybody knows where that is. And anyway, uh, he, he says, were you shaking the car last night? And I said, oh, no, Tom, that was the bear that did that. <laughs> we're all extirpated. So anyway, so the next yeah. down Peoch you know, giant little town. Uh, actually, there isn't much in the long did what was by Caliente and Panaca or it's, yeah, it's just up from yeah, there Panaca. on the way to, and on the way to Ely. And he goes, he says, uh, what was it? Oh, I, I get an alert on my work phone and it says there was a 7.2 earthquake in Nevada. <laughs> I go, that's what you, that's what the shaking was. <laughs> that was the shaking. And ironically, there had been the earthquake in Salt Lake just before that. And that made him go, I've I've had it. COVID, earthquakes. I need to get out. I'm calling Todd. We're going to go on a restful retreat. And yet you drive right into another earthquake. And yeah, it was just a crazy time. But of course, I'll just adventure for Todd, you know. So we camped outside of... of place called like silver peak there's a big lithium mine there it's outside of tonopah and i just went up this random dirt road of course tom's like we're, we're camping here and i'm like yeah, yeah it's this is blm you know you just it's called dispersed camp and the spot <laughs> and and it was really cold and actually that was almost like where the epicenter of the earthquake was was where we camped the night before yeah <laughs> but yeah it's fun that's the fun way to travel actually it is it's your life and i love it and i think landon that you know i think todd has many other adventures uh, and life lessons that he could talk to us about so i think we'll definitely have to have him on again but i've always wanted this story to be for you to be able to share it because i mean those of us back at home we were so worried the whole time you know and trying to do our part well okay tom just likes to be on tv that's mainly what he was doing but <laughs> i was trying to do my part so <laughs> and it was just wow what a thing to happen you know what a defining moment so so i hope that everybody enjoyed getting to know todd and we will have him on again because there's so many other interests and things that he does it's hard to just you know talk about in just uh just a little bit of time here but i guess uh landon do you have any other questions or things to say and i guess we'll say a good day for now huh Yep. Nothing. Uh, just an amazing story, though. I, yep. I, I've 
uh, Tom talks about Todd all the time. And so I, I really look forward to meeting Todd the man. <laughs> yeah, Todd the man. You've met Todd the cat. Now I've meet now Todd, met the man. Todd the man. That's right. <laughs> oh, that's crazy. Well, thank you, Todd. Do you have any last thing to say? And then we'll just call it a wrap. Yeah, anyway, kind of the sweet thing was at the end, it was everybody saying that they were praying for me. So I had the, my friend Joyce and the Jehovah's Witnesses and I had Catholics. I had everybody. Yeah, every denomination was... across the world sending good thoughts, good vibes, prayers, whatever it is. So, yep. And that's it. That's the, that's humanity, right? We all want the best for everybody. And we all think good thoughts when, when somebody's in danger. And I'm just glad everybody's okay. Especially Louise. That was scary to me because I thought she's older, but she, she, and she was okay and kept traveling with you. So that's wonderful. It's fine. We, we lost her a couple years oh. um, later. Yeah. But, but no, she was. 10 years, about 10 more That's years. Great. Yeah. That's amazing. Well, wow. What an experience. We hope that you guys all enjoyed this. We will put, um, let's see, a link to the video, probably the article in the show notes and maybe some other information that we gather. In the meantime, um, thank you very much for Mormonish Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tell your friends, especially this story. It's pretty fascinating, I have to say. So goodbye for now, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Mormonish. We really appreciate our listeners and would love to hear from you if you have a story you'd like to share. You can email us at mormonishpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and on our website, mormonishpodcast.org. And don't forget to look for us on YouTube and like and subscribe. Keep joyful, everybody.